You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this lecture, we're going to concentrate, although not exclusively, on the thought of Thomas Aquinas, whom we've already mentioned. Thomas is willy-nilly the most important figure of the Middle Ages and one of the handful of thinkers in the Western tradition, that knowledge of whom is absolutely essential for anything approaching philosophical or theological literacy. Without apology, I concentrate now on Thomas Aquinas. Sometimes people who are rightly fans of other thinkers feel that there's something unjust about the attention that Thomas receives. And of course, in a fully just world, these other people would receive, if not equal attention, a lot more than they get in summaries such as this. But when we assess the philosophical importance or historical importance of a philosopher, it has to come down to the impact that he made on his own time and on subsequent time. And it would be difficult to name another medieval thinker who is still as influential as Thomas Aquinas. Thomas was born in 1225 in the family castle at Roccasecca, which is a little hill town below Rome and above Naples and about 20 kilometers from Monte Cassino, the great Benedictine abbey. Thomas lived in the family castle until he was five years old and then was entered at the monastic school at Monte Cassino. And his family was a warring family. They were allied with Sicilian forces against the papal forces, so that they often fought in battles against the forces of the Pope. But these battles had nothing to do with theology, and we shouldn't think that somehow they were rebels in the faith. One of the great anomalies for us as we look back is the temporal power of the Pope and the fact that he had armies and went to war and all this sort of thing. It seems unintelligible, perhaps, to us. But this was the world in which Thomas lived, in which his family was engaged. But he went off to the monastery at the age of five and began his studies there, and presumably along the lines of monastic education as we know it. There have been books written about Monte Cassino at the time of Thomas Aquinas. What exactly was his status as an oblate, as an offering by his parents to the monastery? Was he a religious? Was he a monk? And so forth. And the general conclusion is that he was not that he was a secular student, that is a lay student in the monastery, but he was there for quite some time. And he left because of a war, battles that were swirling around Monte Cassino, not for the last time in the history of that monastery. It was, as you know, bombed to smithereens in World War II by the Allied forces because the entrenched German forces around the monastery was either take out the monastery and those forces and go on to Rome or to be bogged down in Italy to the third millennium. And the monastery was bombed. It's been rebuilt and is a place that still attracts many visitors, not all of them veterans of the battles that swirled around there during the Second World War, Although when you go there, you'll see large contingents of German and American veterans visiting the scene of their youth. Thomas, when he was forced to leave the monastery because it became a dangerous place, went to Naples. And here he was enrolled in the University of Naples. 
and pursued his philosophical studies, his studies in the arts. We know something about the teachers that he had at Naples. He had one Irish teacher of logic, managed to survive that. But more significantly, he met Dominicans. He met members of the order of preachers. And he was immediately attracted to this order and decided to join them. And indeed he did. At the age of 19 in Naples, he became a member of the Dominican order. And his family was appalled. It was one thing for a member of such a family to enter the church if there were some advantage to be gained for the family by this vocation. For example, if he had become abbot of Montecassino, this would have been very prestigious and advantageous to his family. But for a man to become a mendicant friar and roam the roadways begging for his bread and so forth, this was infradig indeed, and the family wouldn't have it. So when Thomas was on his way north, to begin his studies as a Dominican friar, his family took him into custody and held him for a year, hoping that this would cool his ardor for the Dominican order and lead him in more respectable directions, perhaps back to Monte Cassino. But Thomas was adamant, and eventually his family gave in, and he continued on to the north. There he studied under Albert the Great, the great German Dominican, both perhaps at Paris and Cologne, certainly at Cologne. And we have here the story of Albert saying that although he was taciturn and quiet in class, that this dumb ox would soon bellow in such a way that he would be audible throughout the breadth of Europe hence the title of Chesterton's famous book on Thomas the Dumb Ox. Thomas then went on to the University of Paris. What a fateful conjunction of this genius with this setting, this very exciting intellectual setting where, as we've mentioned, you had this continuing problem of the role of Aristotle and the relationship of Aristotle to Christian belief. And Thomas immediately is attracted to Aristotle. It's possible, in fact likely, that he was introduced to Aristotle already at the University of Naples, and perhaps even before that at Monte Cassino, in terms of the logical writing. But Thomas's acceptance of Aristotelianism is one of the great moments in the history of Western culture, and it colors and characterizes not only his philosophy, but also his theology. Let's turn to those errors of Aristotle that I mentioned on a previous occasion and see how it is that Thomas Aquinas could adopt this very ironic and receptive attitude towards Aristotle when, by common consent, Aristotle was guilty of errors, that is, held positions which were in contradictory opposition to religious revelation, to Christian revelation. Now, one of the things that marks the difference or one mark of the difference between Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas vis-a-vis -vis Aristotle is this. We find among the writings of St. Thomas something like a dozen commentaries on works of Aristotle. There are none in the Opera Omnia of St. Bonaventure. This is already significant. It's as if Thomas is saying, if you want to talk about what Aristotle taught, let's be very clear and sure that we know what it is that he taught. Before we ask about whether it's a mistake or whether it relates in one way or another to Christian faith, let's first of all understand him. And this led eventually 
although this was somewhat late in his career, from 1268 on, Thomas begins to write commentaries on Aristotle. Twelve in all, not all of them complete. Thomas dies in 1274, and he stops writing during the last year of his life. So you can see that over a period of something like five years, he produced this library of commentaries on Aristotle during a period when, as we will see, he was very busy about other things. So this is an achievement that just boggles the mind. But we should not think that Thomas's uh, close study of Aristotle and his critical attitude towards other interpretations of Aristotle waited until this late phase in his short life. We see already in his commentary on the sentences a prodigious understanding of the works of Aristotle and wariness about the interpretation of Avicenna and of Arawes. So Thomas is a very discerning reader of Aristotle, and he's not taking necessarily as good money what these very authoritative commentators have had to say about the text of Aristotle. And this is important because it is their interpretation of Aristotle very often that led to the notion that Aristotle is teaching something that is in conflict with Christian faith. For example, to hold that the God of Aristotle is unaware of what is going on in the world, that he is, as Aristotle says in Book Lambda of the Metaphysics, thought, thinking itself, meaning that he's just sort of self-absorbed and so forth, and doesn't know what's going on in the world. Thomas shoots this out of the water in terms of what the text of Book Lambda 12 of the Metaphysics actually says. So what he is saying, in effect, with respect to that alleged error of Aristotle is, it's a bad rap. Aristotle didn't teach any such thing at all. So there isn't a conflict between what Aristotle says about God's knowledge of this world and what Christians believe. So too with respect to the Averroistic interpretation of the De Anima, according to which the agent intellect that we talked about, that phos or inner light, is for Avicenna and Averroes, it's a separated substance. It's like a spy in the sky that thinks through individual human beings. But in that is what survives, but individual human beings or human souls do not survive. If Aristotle taught this, it would indeed be in conflict with Christian revelation. But Thomas, in a polemical work, which I translated, called De Unitate Intellectus Contra Veroista, on the uniqueness of the intellect against the Latin of Aroa, argues very persuasively on the basis of the text of the De Anima and the context of the passages of the De Anima and Aristotelian thought in general, that this is a misunderstanding of Aristotle that for Aristotle the agent intellect is a faculty of the individual soul, and if it is the basis on which we prove the immortality of the soul, then each and every human soul is immortal and not simply some separated substance. So those two out of three, he's saying, these are bad raps. If you know Aristotle, if you read him correctly, you're not going to attribute these two, quote, errors to Aristotle. But what about the first one? the eternity of the world. There's no doubt in the world that Aristotle held that the world had always existed, that it made no sense to talk about the world as having come to be. And clearly, this would seem to be in conflict with the revelation of Genesis that in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. What is Thomas going to do with this? What he does is this. He says, in effect, it's true that Aristotle claims that the world could not have come to be. And in one sense, he's right. If 
you think of the world as coming to be as a result of a change. And if change always presupposes a preceding subject of that change, obviously you have to have something prior to the world from which the world comes to be. But wouldn't that prior something also be part of what we call the world? In other words, it seems as if it's incoherent to talk about the whole shebang as having come about as a result of a change given the necessity of a subject for a change to occur. So in that sense of the world's having come into being, Thomas agrees with Aristotle that that is an impossibility. When Thomas agrees with Aristotle that the world could not have come to be as a result of a change, he is of course not denying, far from it, he is preparing the way for saying the world comes to be as a result of creation and what is antecedent to the world is nothing. Now, this has led to a rather common misconception according to which the difference between Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas vis-a-vis -vis the world is that for Thomas Aquinas the world is created and for Aristotle it is not. And as I say, very often people say this is the difference. If it is, it's remarkable that Thomas Aquinas himself did not see that difference. Uh, he himself sees the world of Aristotle as a creative world. The difference is not whether or not the world is created, but whether the world was created in time or not. So in a little polemical work called De Eternitati Mundi on the eternity of the world, Thomas asks, would it have been possible for God to have created the world from all eternity? And his answer is, yeah, that's possible. There's no difficulty. So what we have in Revelation is the news that of two possibilities that lay before God, so to speak, that is of creating the world from all eternity or of creating it in time, he chose to create it in time, but he could have done the other. Okay. Now, with reference to Aristotle, then one would say, since Aristotle wasn't aware of Revelation, didn't have the book of Genesis, didn't have the gift of faith, he would not know that this one possibility had been realized and the other possibility had not been realized. Now, there are those who know that Thomas sees the universe, the world of Aristotle, as created and consider this to be a kind of pious, or he doesn't really mean it, it's just a nice thing to say about Aristotle, that the world was created. I don't think that kind of interpretation really ought to be encouraged. I think Thomas is absolutely serious when he says that the eternal world of Aristotle although of course as eternal it did not come to be as a result of a change, is nonetheless a created world. Since we think of creation as creation in time, we always try to imagine some antecedent state, nothing, prior to the something that is the world. And it's as if there has to be a chronological progression from nothing to something, namely the world. But Thomas says the world of Aristotle, the eternal world of Aristotle, is created in this sense. If you would take away the causality of God from the eternal world of Aristotle, what would you have? Nothing. So in that sense, the world stands over against the nothing that has been negated by the causality of God. And notice that for Aristotle, it is an eternal world that he is dealing with when he argues for the necessity of a first mover of that world. Now, there are those who say, you see, he just pushes things around in a world that he didn't create, but Thomas again rejects that in verbis, uh, in his commentary on the metaphysics, and said it's absurd to think that Aristotle's God is not the cause of the substance of things as well as their movement. 
In short, then, in terms of these three errors of Aristotle, we find Thomas on the basis of a deeper understanding of Aristotle simply rejecting them as having the effect that they were thought to have, say by someone like St. Bonaventure. So he gives a ticket of entry, so to speak, to Christian intellectual life of Aristotle, which the reformers, many of them will lament, but which is nonetheless one of the great realities of the 13th century. And the loss of the enlightenment that we can derive from the commentaries of Thomas on Aristotle is, I think, one of the sadnesses of Aristotelian studies of recent years, which is being corrected now as more people come to know those commentaries and see how much light they cast on what the text of Aristotle actually means. So Thomas was not trying to use Aristotle and twist him to Christian purposes. No one who reads the commentaries of Thomas and Aristotle could possibly believe that, nor could he if he read that little polemical work that I mentioned on the uniqueness of intellect against the Averroes. This is a man who is determined to understand what the text itself says and who bases his argument on the text and not on some antecedent desire to reconcile Aristotle with Christianity. Another way of seeing the relationship between philosophy and theology or faith and reason in Thomas, and one that has cast a tremendous light on this relationship, is Thomas's notion of the preambles of faith. The preambles of faith. And one way of coming at that is by noting, as he does at the beginning of the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is the only great summary of theology that Thomas ever completed, that he will distinguish between two kinds of truths about God. And he will say there are truths about God which can be known to be such on the basis of natural reason alone. What are these? That there is a God. There are sound and cogent proofs for the existence of God, Thomas argued. We can know some of the divine attributes. We can know that God is intelligent. We can know that there can't be more than one God. We can know that God is powerful. We can know that he is the first cause and so forth. These are things that can be known by reason alone. How does Thomas know that? Because they have been known by reason alone. Aristotle came to knowledge of these on the basis of arguments that Thomas accepts as sound. So he's not just proposing this as a possibility, it's a descriptive historical remark when he says that these things can be known because they have been known. There are other truths about God which can only be known to be true on the basis of accepting revelation. And these are truths like there is a trinity of persons in God, or the forgiveness of sins, or that Jesus is both human and divine. We hold these to be true not because we figured it out on the basis of some proof, but because we accept an authoritative revelation. Thanks to the gift of faith, the grace of faith, we are able to assent to these as true even though we do not understand them. Now here is the next move that Thomas makes, which is fascinating importance what he calls the natural truth about God, which are knowable by reason, are also part of revelation. Any believer believes that God exists, of course, and he believes that God is one, he believes that God is intelligent, he believes that God is the first cause, and so forth. So what Thomas notices is this. Some of the things that have been proposed for our acceptance on the basis of faith, some of the things that have been revealed about God, are identical with things that philosophers have come to know about God. 
So he takes this little subset of truths out of Revelation, and he labels them what? The preambles of faith. And by that he means they were known prior to the faith. These are truths about God that were known prior to the faith. He's not suggesting that you and I or anyone has to first of all study philosophy and then later on he might be led into belief. That might happen, but that's certainly not necessary. God can raise up from these very stones children of Abraham. He's not restricted to this kind of sequence. But notice now that here is the set imagine a big circle. This is the set of revealed truths. We may not know all of them yet in terms of what the implications of Revelation are, but say here is this set of revealed truths. And Thomas notices that among them are truths about God, claims about God, which have been proved, as he argued, by philosophical arguments. Huh? Now, this is of absolutely fundamental importance for Thomas. On the one hand, it shows what the range of natural reason is, even in its sinful condition. And he takes seriously, as St. Augustine had and so many of the fathers, the verse of the Epistle to the Romans, the first chapter of Romans, verses 19 to 20. St. Paul talking about the pagan Romans now, and he's going to lament the fact that they misbehave in all kinds of ways, and he's saying that this is inexcusable. They are inexcusable. They're pagans, huh? but they're doing all these naughty things, and why are they without excuse for having done them? Because they can, from the things that are made, come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. Huh? So the church has always taken this verse to be a kind of charter for the claim that it is possible for human beings, even independent of faith and revelation, to come to some knowledge of God. It's meager as compared to the fullness of revelation. In many cases, it's flawed in one way or the other. But for Thomas, it's possible to look at this phenomenon either in terms of how little it is or how much it reveals about the capacity of the human mind. And furthermore, it provides him with a powerful argument for the reasonableness of faith. Faith now he's going to attach primarily to those items in the body of Revelation which cannot be understood in this life. No philosopher, no theologian could understand them in the sense that he could accept them as true on some basis other ultimately than that God had revealed them. But the relationship between those truths, which now Thomas is going to call mysteries, and which are the proper object of faith, and the others, the preambles of faith, is this. He will say, look, all of these are given in the package, so to speak, of Revelation. Some of the truths about God, which are included in Revelation, can be known to be true. That is, even if one didn't have the faith, he could arrive at the truth that there is a God, that he is one, and so forth. And from that, Thomas devises this argument. If some of the things that have been revealed, the preambles of faith, can be known to be true, it is reasonable to accept the mysteries which we cannot understand in this life as true. So it's a kind of sampling argument. It's not a proof of the truth of the mystery, but it's a proof of the reasonableness of our acceptance as true.
mysteries that we cannot in this life understand. But of course our faith is that by trusting in God's authority and accepting these mysteries as true in this life, we will eventually see even as we are seen and we will enjoy a beatifying vision of the fullness of truth and then faith and hope will pass away and only charity remain. Thomas's conviction of the range of reason, of the power of human reason, even in sinful man, is one of the great marks of his thinking. He, of course, is not unaware of the deleterious effects of sin, original and personal, on the intellectual life of human being. But he sees in these remarkable instances, principally in Aristotle, of the power of the human mind, the conviction that we could have gotten at least some intimation of God if he hadn't, out of his mercy, revealed more to us and had sent indeed his Son to redeem us from the effects of sin. The relationship now between philosophy and theology, we've talked about the relationship between faith and reason, certain truths about God. Some of those truths are said to be known by philosophy. What is philosophy as opposed to theology? Theology would be reflection on the mysteries of faith, chiefly, but on the whole deposit of revelation, including the preambles as well. But how could we characterize philosophy and theology for Thomas Aquinas? There are two kinds of discourse. He's accepting the Aristotelian notion of philosophy, all of its divisions and array of different sciences and so forth. But how would he characterize it, generally speaking? as opposed, let's say, not just to the faith, but to theology, another kind of discourse, the sort of thing that he engages in, in his Summa Theologiae, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, the Commendium Theologiae, and in any number of other writings of Thomas. You can read all about that in a little selection from the writings of Thomas that I prepared for Penguin Books, a Penguin classic that appeared last year. But how would Thomas characterize the difference between philosophy and theology? A philosophical argument for Thomas is one that works because it appeals to principles which are ultimately in the public domain. Now Aristotle doesn't have to say this because this is the only kind of thinking and arguing that he's going to be talking about. There are certain things Aristotle says that everybody knows immediately, straight out, just by fact of being a human being. You don't learn the principle of contradiction. You don't learn that it's impossible for a thing to be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. That's just sort of embedded in anything else that you know. And if you quarrel about some middle distance or esoteric topics, ultimately you're going to push it back to the point where you're going to see that presupposed by any position, by any statement, by any knowledge claim, is this principle and certain other principles, which are not simply principles of thinking, but they're principles of reality primarily. And that's why they become principles of thinking, because we know the things that are. Yet our thinking is governed by that very fact. So for Aristotle, it's just a given when he analyzes human knowledge that there are certain truths which are inescapable. No one who has standard cognitive equipment, that is, no normal human being, could fail to be aware of such truth. And these are the starting points of reasoning. Now what that gives is a kind of test, both commonly and then within each of the sciences. When you put forth an argument, if somebody disagrees with it, what you have to be able to show is that it depends upon other things with which he would not disagree. 
and ultimately with things with which he could not disagree. That's the nature of philosophical discourse. And if you propose something is true and somebody says, why should I accept that? I can't explain it. Just I see that it's true. Whatever else we would call that, we wouldn't call it a philosophical position. A philosophical position is one that is always on the qui vive to respond to relevant questions that are put to it. And if somebody asks us in terms of a philosophical position, why do you say that? We say, well, for this reason. And we try to put it into a context that would commend it to the acceptance of our interlocutor. If we can't do that, all things being equal, if we can't do that, we lose. The philosophical argument that's defective, not our interlocutor. I say all things being equal because he has to pay attention and want to understand and a lot of other presuppositions that normally overlook when we talk about these things. Theological discourse, by contrast, is a discourse which if somebody would say, why do you say that? What the theologian will do is to reduce it back to certain truths that have revealed. And those are the starting points and those are the stoppers. And this is the great difference between philosophy and theology. Not everyone, alas, accepts as true what has been revealed in sacred scripture. So that not everyone in listening to a philosophical argument going to accept the conclusion as true. They don't accept the premises as true. They might be able to see the logical sequence, but it wouldn't be a vehicle of new truths for them, a theological argument. At any rate, that is the great difference, that philosophical discourse depends upon starting points which are in the public domain. Theological discourse depends upon starting points which are accepted as true on the basis of God revealing. There is a relation between these two kinds of discourse, just as there is a relationship between the preambles of faith and the mysteries of faith. And for Thomas, the very first question of the first part of the Summa Theologiae, the first article of the first question of the first part, asks, why do we need any sciences other than the philosophical sciences? Now, one of the conclusions that we can derive from that starting point is that he's assuming that his readers already know philosophy. So it's as if, from the point of view of theology, the propideutic is philosophy. And of course, we should remember that for Thomas, as for Aristotle, and for everybody up until yesterday, philosophy was simply a name for all human knowledge. It wasn't a department as opposed to other departments and the like. Whether this is a gain or a loss, this kind of fragmentation isn't our present concern. But for Thomas, that in effect means that the theologian has to be knowledgeable about almost everything in order to operate successfully as a theologian, which makes it, of course, the queen of the sciences, makes it the ultimate endeavor of the human mind and leads us to see, as Newman argued, and the idea of a university, that a university that does not have theology as the pinnacle of the efforts going on there is simply not a university in the full sense of the term. Thomas's influence in the Dominican order is untroubled and unquestioned from the 13th century onward. But something happened because of the difference between Bonaventure and Thomas vis-a-vis -vis Aristotle that was crucial for the subsequent history of medieval philosophy. The Franciscans, speaking generally, tended to be very skeptical of Thomas's attitude towards 
Aristotle, particularly in the light of the depredations of Latin of Arawism. And they thought he was kind of soft on Latin of Arawism in being receptive to Aristotle. And consequently, after his death, published a collection of the supposed errors of St. Thomas, huh? which was authored by a Franciscan, and which exhibits the attitude that Franciscans had towards the Aristotelianism of Thomas Aquinas. This was responded to by a series of works by Dominican champions of Thomas, but it set up a kind of opposition between the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Indeed, after Thomas's death in 1277, there was a condemnation by a Council of Paris of a number of propositions generated by the Latin Averroistic dispute, mainly. And among them, we can find propositions of Thomas Aquinas himself. So in some sense, in this narrow regional sense, we can say that Thomas was actually condemned by the church but this, of course, was not the universal church, and all this was rescinded rather quickly prior to Thomas's canonization. But here you had a kind of opposition between Franciscans and Dominicans on this point, but lurking beneath it is another more serious point. It's not just turf, or it's not just loyalty to an order as opposed to another order. Lurking behind it is an attitude as to the range of human reason and Thomas has, by comparison, a robust sense of the capacity of human reason and the range of reason, that of course we can know the immortality of the soul, of course we can know that God exists and so forth. These are acquisitions that are not simply held on the basis of faith. What the Franciscan attitude towards Aristotle brought along with it was a growing sense of the limited range of human reason. And when people talk about a kind of decline of the great synthesis of Thomas, which in some ways is presaged by that of his master, Albert the Great, another Dominican, when they talk about the dissolution of this, very often what we unfortunately are looking at is the history of a Franciscan theologian. And at the end of the 13th century, with Duns Scotus, you have, in one respect, a very robust sense of what the range of reason is. Duns Scotus gives us proofs for the existence of God. He's called the subtle doctor, and that's almost inadequate to describe the convolutions and precisions and subdivisions of anything that he touches. Scotus was a Scotsman who went down to join the Franciscan order and studied at Oxford, and then he studied at Paris, and then he taught at Paris, taught at Oxford, taught at Paris, and then taught at Cologne, which is where he died. And you can visit his grave there in a church in Cologne, and just up the street is another church where you can visit the grave of Albert the Great. But there are two things about Scotus that one wants to mention, and that is with respect to the problem. Well, let's just confine ourselves. With respect to the problem that was raised by the contrast of illumination and abstraction, how is it possible for us to use abstraction as the explanation of our knowledge of immaterial things if abstraction seems to bear only on material things? With Scotus, we have the very characteristic claim that we have a univocal concept of being, that the concept of being that we form is already such that it ranges over material and immaterial things. It includes creature and God. If this weren't the case, 
Scotus effectively says, it would be impossible to move from creatures to God. There would be no common conceptual territory within which such a move could be made. And he sees that in terms of his claim that the concept of being is univocal. This will be one of the things that will be severely questioned by proponents of Thomas Aquinas's thought for whom being is an analogous term. What happens with the continuation of the Middle Ages is that we do see a declension away from the confidence of Thomas Aquinas that it is possible for us to learn such truths by philosophical arguments as that the soul is immortal and that God exists and so on. Eventually, this confidence will be lost and things that were thought to fall under the heading of what Thomas calls preambles of faith will be tugged over under the heading of mysteries of faith, such that the only way we could know them to be true is on the basis of revelation. So as the history of medieval philosophy continues, you get this diminished range of reason. And with the rise of nominalism and the questioning of the capacity of the human mind to grasp the natures and essences of things, we are on a route that eventually will lead to modernity. The Renaissance doesn't really rein this in. The Renaissance interests in Plato tends to be extremely literary, and it doesn't pose anything like a check on this diminished sense of the range of reason. So it is possible to look at medieval philosophy. Sometimes Thomas overdo this and see everything is kind of inching towards this pinnacle that is Thomas Aquinas, and almost immediately afterwards thinkers begin to tumble down this slope into the morass of nominalism and looking ahead to certain aspects of modern philosophy which are not exactly flattering to the capacity of the human mind to know the world around us. It might be not totally inappropriate to conclude these lectures, since we've concentrated in this last one so much on Thomas Aquinas, with his subsequent role in the history of philosophy and indeed in the history of the church and his role today. In 1879, Leo XIII issued an encyclical named after its opening Latin words, Eterni Patris. But the title of the encyclical was actually on Christian philosophy. And in it, Leo XIII was urging as a remedy for the social and intellectual and cultural ills of the time, he's writing in 1879, a return to the study of Thomas Aquinas. And return is not an exaggeration. While Leo himself and his brother and others in Perugia had been interested in Thomas long before he became bishop there and pope, and while there were other little pockets of interest in Thomas in Naples and elsewhere, by and large, Thomas had pretty well dropped out of the picture except in Dominican convents. When Cardinal Newman went to Rome to prepare for his ordination as a Catholic priest, he asked around about Thomas Aquinas, and he got very dismissive remarks from people, oh, nobody studies Thomas anymore. They wouldn't reject him, but nobody takes him seriously anymore. A great loss there, because perhaps if Newman, who did, as a matter of fact, know a lot about Thomas and own quite a number of Thomas's works, which we are assured he read, there are marginalia in them, but if perhaps Newman at that point had met with a real Thomas, it would have been very interesting for his subsequent career, which of course was distinguished and important without this.
But I mention that event in Newman's visit to Rome as an indication that Thomas had indeed fallen out of favor or attention on the part of ecclesiastics in Rome, at least. Theo wanted to bring him back, and indeed he did. The Thomistic revival that followed on Eterni Patris is something that one can look back with wonder at the societies that were formed, the journals that were formed, the curricula that were reformed in terms of this return to Thomas and so forth. It was a tremendous success up to and through, but not after the Second Vatican Council. But now with Fides et Ratio of John Paul II, which appeared in 1998, we are again being urged to see in Thomas our special mentor in matters theological and philosophical. Not our sole mentor, of course, but Thomas is a thinker who is not a kind of thinker. Thomas was not a Thomist as opposed to a Scotozo. He was interested in truth wherever it could be found. So labels weren't particularly of interest to him. If he was interested in Aristotle as he was, it was because he thought, my gosh, this is true. But when he came upon Neoplatonic works such as that of the Pseudo-Dionysius or the Liber de Causi, he was equally interested in these. So again, it wasn't as if he said, well, that's not Aristotelian, I'm not interested in it. So labels of that kind don't easily apply to Thomas. And John Paul II seems to have this in mind in putting him before us again, not to turn us away from possible sources of truth and so forth, but to give a kind of exuberant lift to the notion of the range of reason and the need for philosophy on the part of theology. And what the Holy Father sees is that philosophy is in a bad way in our time. And it's a phenomenon to be noticed that here you have the Pope coming as much to the defense and aid of reason as he is to faith. He sees that the faith is something that cannot survive and live if we have a disdainful or inadequate concept of what human reason is. So that the diminishing of the confidence in the range of reason which characterizes subsequent medieval philosophy and theology after Thomas has serious consequences. And it leads to what is perhaps the worst condition of religious belief, and that is fideism. That is the notion that while we accept things as true because they have been revealed, we don't know how they relate to anything that could be known. They might be in conflict with them, we don't know. They're just all by themselves and we don't want to ask those questions. This is to isolate the faith from the role that it is meant to play throughout our lives, through our intellectual lives, and make it just a sort of quirk that we have. For all purposes, on the basis of fideism, what is proposed for our belief might be pure nonsense. Huh? And we might, in a Tertullian mood, say, credo quia absurdum, believe because it is absurd. That is not a healthy attitude for the believer to take. So the recovery of the sense of the range of reason and the possibilities of philosophy, the present pope rightly sees as a condition for the flourishing of the faith. It's not as if the faith is deduced from natural reason or anything like that, but it provides a setting within which the faith and certainly theology can flourish as they cannot if that is absent. 
So it looks as if, certainly from the point of view of the Catholic Church and John Paul II, that the role of Thomas Aquinas is by no means exhausted in the history of Christian thought. And of course, when we look at the history of philosophy, we are first of all and primarily trying to get as accurate a picture as we can as to what happened and who said what and why. But ultimately, the reason we study the history of philosophy is because we think it is important and useful for philosophizing itself. The history of philosophy was called by James Collins, a great professor at the University of St. Louis, the lingua franca of philosophers. And there is a sense in which it fulfills this role as well. But we can notice that when philosophy falls on evil days, when it hits a cul-de-sac, when it runs into a brick wall, it almost instinctively turns to its antecedents, to its predecessor, sometimes all the way back to Parmenides, as I mentioned in the case of Heidegger, sometimes back to Kant or something like that in the case of certain analytic philosophers. In any case, there is a sense that we have to put ourselves into relationship with others who have engaged in this enterprise before us. There's nothing more tiresome in the history of philosophy than people rising up and announcing that everything that happened prior to them was false and mistaken and so on, and here they are finally, and now it can begin. Such claims are usually based upon an almost total ignorance of the history of philosophy, and as often as not, they exhibit that maxim that someone who is ignorant of history is fated to repeat its errors, and so it is often with these declarations of some new turn, critical turn or linguistic turn in philosophy, which effectively renders obsolete and uninteresting everything that has gone before. And when philosophers lose their confidence in this sort of nonsense, they are inevitably going to be interested in the history of philosophy. And certain figures are going to loom larger than others, although we don't want to ignore the minor figures or indeed the spear carriers on the stage of the history of philosophy. But the figures that we've emphasized in these lectures, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, just to recall those four, are giants in the history of Western thought. And it's impossible to think of anyone with a genuine interest in learning or truth who would be unaware of the writings of these two men. To be a philosopher is inevitably to go to Plato and to Aristotle. To be a Christian philosopher is inevitably to go as well to Augustine and to Thomas Aquinas and other lesser figures as well. But these are the giants on whose shoulders we stand. And if we are going to see ahead into the future, it's not going to be by repudiating the past, but by trying to assimilate it and applying the lessons that we learn from it to our own times and pointing into the future. We stand now, of course, on the threshold of the third millennium as John Paul II was very much conscious when he issued Fides et Ratio. And he's talking about the relevance of these figures that we have been discussing, not simply for an individual's intellectual life and so forth, but the cultural importance that they have, and not only for the second millennium, but for the third millennium as well. So history points us to the past in one sense, but as we assimilate it, it makes the present more intelligible, and let us hope it will make the future possible.
We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.